0: Welcome to worship on this uh, awesome Memorial Day weekend. As you know, many people in the Capital Region kind of mark this weekend as the official beginning of summer. So I hope that this is a good weekend for you and that it's uh, simply the first step toward an amazing, amazing season of summer in your own life and for your family. In the past few weeks, There have been a number of documentaries about the L.A. riots in 1992. In fact, there were five just in April alone commemorating the 25th anniversary of this significant chapter in the life of Los Angeles where 55 people lost their lives through violent acts of some kind, thousands were injured, and... um, The damage was no less than a billion dollars. So many amazing stories came out of those six days of uprising. But to me, one of the most inspirational single stories was actually first recorded by Reader's Digest, and it appeared in a number of periodicals and magazines and newspapers as well after that. It's entitled, Benny Newton's Moment of Truth. I want to read a portion of it for for you. When Benny Newton, a black preacher, first heard the results of the Rodney King trial, he winced and anticipated trouble. Before turning his life over to Christ, he himself had been arrested 25 times and had spent time in prison. But while incarcerated, Benny Newton had met a prison chaplain who shared the gospel and, was converted, and God converted him to Christ. And now Benny Newton was a preacher in a small church in downtown Los Angeles. And he knew both sides of the story. During the violence, he decided to attend a meeting with some local ministers and city officials later that night. But early that evening, he and his wife Sharon watched in horror as a live newscast showed a white man with long hair who had been hauled from the cab of a tractor trailer, being kicked, beaten, blood spurting from his head, now left to die on the streets. Newton sucked in his breath. Everybody was going to be up at the church meeting that night, but who was going to be out on the street? Newton put on his dark suit and his minister's collar, hoping that would protect him some, and he grabbed his Bible and headed out the door. His wife said that she felt a chill. He drove into the intersection of Florence and Normandy, and it was like a war zone. Could one man challenge this unbridled violence? He remembered the scripture, perfect love cast out fear, and he waded into the crowd, holding his Bible over his head. Brothers, he cried, this is not the way. There is a better way. Preacher, we don't want to hear it, one man shouted. So Newton watched in frustration until his eye caught an old pickup truck entering the intersection. Fidel Lopez, age 47, was coming home after an exhaustion-filled day in construction. But a gang member bashed in the windshield of Lopez's truck with a long pipe, and Lopez slammed on the brakes, and the mob rushed the truck, pulled Lopez out, and began kicking and punching him. A youth with a can of black spray paint began to paint Lopez's face. And Lopez tried to get up, but they knocked him back down. Newton jumped into the middle and said, stop, this is not right. He pushed the attackers aside, but they shoved him out of the way. Get out of here, preacher, one of them snarled. We're going to show him how Rodney King felt. Lopez staggered to his feet and started to try to run. He was pounded to the pavement again, and a man who had just looted a stereo from a nearby store hit Lopez over the head with the stereo knocking him unconscious. Newton then shouted, no more. And he jumped in the middle and threw himself over Lopez's body. And he looked up at the gang and said, you kill him, you kill me. And he braced himself for the blows. But the blows didn't come. The gang backed off, and Newton then found a way to drag Lopez into his vehicle, and he drove him to the hospital where he was treated. And that night, Benny Newton didn't just pray with Fidel Lopez. He also had a prayer with Reginald Denny, the long-haired man that he and his wife had seen on television earlier who was being treated in the same hospital. And Benny Newton said on the way home that night, he was exhausted. But he felt a sense of satisfaction as he remembered that passage of Scripture in Proverbs 24 that says, rescue those who are being led away to death, hold back those who are staggering towards slaughter. Brothers and sisters, a genuine faith in God always produces an active concern for other people. We are in the rescue business as followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself gave his mission statement in Luke 19 when he said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus said, He came to serve, not to be served. And he said to his disciples, and by extension to you and me, He said, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus is in the rescue business, and we are too, if we're his followers. Our faith should issue in an active concern for people, no matter who they are, no matter whether they're far from God or near, we need to love them and care. This amazing passage in James chapter 2 kind of puts it in perspective for us. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily bread, and one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. We're in the rescue business, you and me. That's what this is all about. That's why this church exists, to rescue people who've been entrapped and enslaved and ambushed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And God loves them right where they are, and he's called us to be a part of the rescue. So in other words, the Christian faith is not just this deal where we kind of sit back and give mental assent to certain dogmas. Oh, I believe God exists. Oh, I believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the grave. But we don't do a thing about it. That's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith says, look, we're going to do something about this The Bible says even the demons believe the right things and tremble. But genuine faith acknowledges that responsibility to be compassionate and to act. The writer of 1 John, the Apostle John, puts it like this in chapter 3. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Boy, these are stark words. (laughs) Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. God bless you. Be warmed and filled. We'll see you next week, all right? Boy, isn't that, isn't that kind of in your face? I mean, look at this. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. You see, belief is the root of our relationship with God, but action is the fruit of it. And I want you to ask yourself today in this message Who is God putting on my heart that really, really needs to be rescued? And it could be sort of one of two major categories, I suppose. It could be the rescue of one who's never yet placed faith or belief in Jesus at all. Maybe they don't have any idea what the good news is really about or what this Christian life is, and they desperately need rescue. But it could be that God is putting on your heart someone, a friend, a family member, a coworker, a neighbor, a person in your small group, someone on your ball team, someone in your classroom. It could be that God is putting on your heart someone who does have a genuine faith, but you know what? They've been ambushed by temptation, and today they've become deeply entangled. They need rescue as well. So as we look carefully at this story today in Genesis 14, I believe it underscores our responsibility to be involved with the needy people around us, whoever they are. As we pick this story up, Abraham had received this uh, disturbing report that his nephew Lot had been taken captive. And I want you to see, first of all, that Abraham's response was concern. He had a deep and genuine concern for the one who'd been captured. We pick it up here in chapter 14 of Genesis, verse 11. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions. Now, let's pause there. Remember last week, we saw that interesting story where the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abraham had begun to quarrel over border disputes and issues. And so Abraham had said to his nephew, look, if they're quarreling today, we're gonna be fighting tomorrow, so let's just kind of make a deal here. You pick whichever land you want. You go ahead and make a choice first, and whichever land you choose, I'll kind of go the opposite direction. And as we saw last week, Lot selfishly chose the most fertile land, the most lush pasture. And so Abraham and his herdsmen headed toward the rugged hill country. Lot's territory was more fertile and tillable, but there was one big problem. The end of verse 12 reads, he was living in Sodom. Now, Sodom, according to the book of Ezekiel, was a city that was known for being rather rude and inhospitable. But in a number of other passages, we see that Sodom was mostly known because of its rampant sexual immorality. In fact, there's an interesting passage here in 2 Peter, which gives us a realistic insight into what Lot kind of dealt with day after day in his own soul. Look at what this says. Lot was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, there in the city of Sodom, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. There's an old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. And I think that's true a lot of the time. But I think more often, familiarity breeds contempt complacency. I think the family had become rather comfortable and complacent about it all. Lot's wife probably loved to shop in the fine shops in Sodom, and his children wanted to go to the exclusive and more sophisticated schools of Sodom. Evidently, there came a day when Lot just kind of sold his cattle business, and they just moved right into the city itself. Alexander Pope said, sin is a vice of frightful mean. To be hated needs only to be seen, but seen too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. Lot embraced Sodom. But then a day came when there was a border dispute and some terrorists acted violently. We've all been grieved, with the bombing, the suicide bombing, recently in Manchester. No doubt you've read the stories, watched the news. 22 innocent people killed, dozens more injured. And we need to keep praying for all those victims' families and everyone impacted by this atrocity. But folks, terrorism, while it has escalated in our day, it seems, terrorism is nothing new. Here in this ancient world, these terrorists took Lot and his family hostage. And now he's being held by these hostile kings, and he was in deep trouble. Lot was headed either for slavery or maybe for death. Verse 13 says, one who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now, I want to stop right there and make a spiritual parallel. By the way, just a little plug for the rest of this series. In my estimation, as I'm studying and looking at these passages and looking at how practical they are, the ones that we're about to study together throughout the month of June, I just want to tell you, you don't want to miss next week because if you've ever grown impatient in your walk with God... You know, you felt like God had given you a promise. He had given you a sense that something was going to come about, and yet it wasn't happening as fast as you wanted. Has that ever happened to you? And we grow impatient in our faith, and that's often where we get in trouble. Next week, we're going to look at that episode in the life of Abraham and Sarah. And then in my estimation, it just gets more practical and more helpful as we go on through the series. So I encourage you. To be a part of every one of these studies. But I want to make this spiritual application here. Now, Lot was literally physically held captive. Captive. But do you realize that there are millions in our country who are held spiritual captives? The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that there are people that have been taken captive and they're being held hostage by the devil or there's this interesting passage in Colossians chapter 2 verse 8 where Paul gives us this warning. Now he's talking to Christian people here. Remember that, this is not some warning to unbelievers, this is to Christian people. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. It is possible to be taken captive by the false philosophies of the world. Have you ever sensed that battle that's going on? It's a battle for truth. It's a battle between good and evil, yes. It's a battle between darkness and light, yes. But it's mostly, I think, shows up as a battle between competing values, competing worldviews between truth and lies. All of you, when I say Dr. Ruth, if you're 40 years old or older, you certainly recognize that name. She worked for Planned Parenthood for many years, has been considered a sex expert in the United States for decades now. She's actually still alive and still kind of active in a number of ways, as I understand it. But some years ago, I'll never forget seeing a talk show where she was mostly talking in this audience to college-age students. And after she would given a little spiel and made a little lecture, uh, she, she said there in a flourish that, bottom line, we just can't expect young people to abstain from sexual intercourse before they're married. The libido is just too strong. They just can't discipline themselves that way. So we should just expect that. And the whole audience, of course, clapped in applause and adoration of Dr. Ruth. And then toward the end of the time, there was a Q&A session. And one young man raised his hand and said, Dr. Ruth, my girlfriend won't have sex with me. What should I do? And she said, well, I think you should wait. And I wanted to go, wait a minute. I wanted that young man to stand up and go, but what about my libido? What about you just, you said just a few minutes ago that that's not possible to discipline ourselves to do that. And impressionable young minds are being taken captive through the shallow and contradictory philosophies of this world. And they buy into the principles as though it's an enlightened solution. Psalm 82 verse 4 reads, rescue the weak and needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Who has God put on your heart? A name, a face, someone you honestly care about that needs to be rescued from the trap of the devil. The truth is, some of you have Christian friends who were active in worship just a couple of years ago, or maybe even a few months ago. But they've been morally ambushed, taken hostage. Maybe they even lived godly lives, but something happened. They fell into temptation. They began to slide. They got perhaps sucked into a cult or into a group that is just feeding them lies. If your faith in God is genuine, the very first thing you should feel is a genuine, heartfelt concern. We should have a deep-seated concern for people who are being beaten up and led astray. Satan has taken them captive to do his will. Galatians 6.1 says that if they're a brother or sister in Christ, we have a special responsibility to reach out and try to restore them. Brothers, if someone's caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself or you also may be tempted. Has God put someone on your heart like that? If he has, all I'm saying is that's probably the Holy Spirit really prompting you that, hey, you are going to be God's hands and feet. You're going to do it kindly. You're going to do it lovingly. You're going to do it winsomely. You're going to bring grace and truth together in perfect balance. Yes, you, because you're on God's dream team. Really. You say, oh, that's corny. No, no, it's not corny, it's true. You're on God's dream team, and he wants to use you in marvelous ways to help rescue people who've been taken captive. Well, Abraham learned of Lot's captivity, and I'm impressed because he responded decisively here. Verse 14, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, He called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit. Abraham was concerned. He could have copped a different attitude. He could have taken a kind of callous view and said, ha, Lot has made his bed. Let him lie on it. I told that dude, you don't want to go that direction. Hey, listen, man, living in Sodom, it's not going to work out for you But he wouldn't listen. He was too blind and naive. So he's got to reap what he's sown. But no, that that wasn't the attitude. Abraham learned what was going on, and he was deeply concerned enough to get involved. 1 John 3, 17 says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? The same is true not just with material needs, but with spiritual needs. How can we honestly say we love someone if we aren't willing to kind of take a risk and reach out and try try to help? Now, I'll admit that's not easy. And that compassion doesn't always come automatically. And let's even go further. Some people that we try to help are obnoxious. If you've ever been in that role, you know what I'm talking about. They're not easy to help. I love that bumper sticker that reads, God loves you, and I'm trying. Yeah, that's one of the most honest bumper stickers I've ever seen. God loves you, and I'm trying, but it's not always easy. And yet God's word is so clear. 1 John 4, verse 20, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen and he's given us this command whoever loves God must also love his brother. So who is he, who is God putting on your heart that you need to just reach out with to in love just maybe with a kind word with a concerned heart. But Abraham was not just concerned. Abraham's response secondly was smart. This is so impressive. He didn't go off in a half-baked fashion. No, he got a strategic plan. He calculated the odds. He made a coalition with some other leaders. He went into training mode. He trained 318 of his own men. And once on the battlefield, whoo, he cleverly divided his troops into two divisions and attacked from opposite directions. That was smart. And if we're going to be in the rescue business, we've got to be smart too. I heard about a doctor whose car broke down right right in front of an insane asylum. And the doctor got out, and he was changing the tire, and he was almost finished. But just as he was about to put the new tire on and put the lug nuts on, he, he accidentally kicked the hubcap where he had the lug nuts there in it. And the lug nuts rolled down into a grate and right down into the sewer, and there was no way he could retrieve them. Oh, he was so frustrated. He sat there with his head in his hands going, what am I going to do now? And a man behind the fence of the insane asylum had been watching this whole thing. He'd seen everything. And he said, well, maybe you could take one lug nut from each of the other three tires and put those three lug nuts on the new tire, and that would be plenty to hold it until you could get to a service station and get the thing properly fixed. The man said, wow, what a great idea. That is awesome. Thank you so much. And then he said, with an answer like that, what are you doing in there? The man said, well, I may be crazy, but I'm not stupid, right? You know, sometimes I wonder, we as believers, we may be forgiven and free in Christ, but sometimes we're not always as smart as we need to be when it comes to the business of rescue. Jesus, our Lord, put it like this in Matthew chapter 10. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent or gentle as doves. Now, we don't struggle with being as gentle as doves. It's that shrewd as snakes part, I think, that most of us struggle with. We just don't think that's very spiritual. And so sometimes we're lacking in wisdom as we go about the rec- rescue business, whether it's restoring a fallen sister or brother, or whether it's trying to share the gospel and evangelize. Folks, it's time we got smarter as Christians. We don't now need any more surveys door to door, like the guy who was going around and he, he would begin his spiel like this. Hey, Uh, I'm just doing a survey on, you know, why people are going to hell. I just wondered why you're going. That ain't going to win anybody. That's abrasive. That's obnoxious. We've got to be tactful and full of grace. Paul puts it like this in Colossians chapter 4. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every... In other words, he's saying, like Jesus, be shrewd here. Be wise, be tactful. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So as our life is our ministry, we cannot become obnoxious. We cannot get arrogant and uppity and think, well, we've got the truth and you need it, so we're going to condescendingly cram it down your throat. That's that's not going to win anyone to Christ, brothers and sisters. Abraham was so smart here as he went about this rescue. I heard of a small group Bible study that they were just together for the first time, and they were trying to get to know each other, and they were introducing themselves. And one guy said, well, hi, I, I, I serve as a corporate attorney. And then a, a woman said, well, hi, I'm, I'm a plastic surgeon. That's what I do day by day. And And another guy said, well, I'm a design engineer. And one woman's rather sheepishly standing there thinking maybe she didn't fit too well in this group. But she said, I'm an evangelist for Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as a checkout lady at Price Chopper. (laughs) Now that is shrewd. That is wise. That's what we need, whatever your vocation. And I think that's the spirit behind 1 Corinthians 9.22, where Paul says, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. He wasn't speaking out of both sides of his mouth when he said that. He was saying, look, we've got to be smart, people. When we think about influencing people for Christ and letting our life be our ministry and being a part of this rescue ministry that God's called us to, we've got to be wise, And so again, I urge you, pray, Lord, who have you put on my heart? Who have you put in my path, in my life, that you would want to use me in a loving, winsome way to reach out to them? And Lord, would you show me how to do that? Finally, Abraham's response was concern. It was smart. Third, I want you to see that his response was courageous. I mean, he was really taking a risk here when he began to, on this mission to rescue his nephew. I've talked to a number of people who've been involved in active war, active battle in a war, and they say, you know what, it's so scary. Soldiers may try to act real macho about it and like it's no big deal, and they're all brave. But he said, I, I've heard guys say, veterans, heart, veterans of war say, it is so scary scary. It You're so afraid, but you just keep on acting and you keep on going. Here, Abraham doesn't know what's going to happen. He could lose his life. And I would say to you, brothers and sisters, as we're involved in a spiritual battle, and it is, by the way, if that language sounds strange to you, if it sounds too militaristic, I mean, sorry, it's just biblical language. It really is. Scripture makes a lot of that, that our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places and so on. That's just all over the Bible. So if that makes you uncomfortable, as a follower of Jesus, you, you better come to grips with that. We really are in a battle here. But what I'm saying to you today is it's one thing to sing the national anthem. It's a whole different thing to join the army. It's one thing to sit safely in the comfort of your chair in the church building and sing onward, Christian soldiers. It's another thing to get engaged in the battle day by day where it's real. And there are real darts flying that do damage. You try to rescue a Christian who falls away, and you can be rebuffed. You can be ridiculed. I've been cursed. I've been literally cursed trying to reach out to someone who's fallen into a web of sin, a dear, dear brother that I care deeply about. You try to talk to someone about Christ, and you could be horribly misunderstood. The point is it takes courage to say, I'm going to stand on the truth, and I'm going to bring grace and truth together in perfect balance. I'm going to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. In the year 2000, my family and I had an awesome privilege. I I got to go back to Amsterdam in the Netherlands where I had worked for 13 months back in the mid-'80s. And we were privileged to be a part of an international conference there called Amsterdam 2000. It was just awesome. But after the three weeks of the conference, we had a chance to do a brief time of travel as we were already there in Europe. And one of the places we went was the city that spelled Worms, pronounced Worms for the sophisticated German palate. And the city of Worms has a gorgeous and massive cathedral built in the 9th century. It's a picturesque place, gorgeous countryside all around. It was heavily bombed during World War II, but so much has been beautifully rebuilt. And I had a chance to stand there in the very place in that cathedral where Martin Luther stood 500 years ago. For those of you who may not know, This year is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. The actual day that is commemorated is October the 31st. That is Reformation Day, where in 1517, Martin Luther tacked his 95 theses, these 95 propositions that he wanted to dialogue about to the church door in Wittenberg. And by the way, this fall, I'm going to have at least two what I believe to be very important messages. I think you're going to really, really love it. I think you're going to be intrigued to hear his story as I just share what happened in Martin Luther's life and and what the Reformation is all about. And I'm going to turn a corner and say, do we still need Reformation today? We're going to have a great time with that. That's going to be this fall. But I stood there where he, under threat of his life, he was being threatened to be, excommunicated by the church. There were many people who had made threats on his life and just wanted to kill him. And he stood there and had to tell what he had come to believe by reading Scripture about salvation being by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And they pressed him hard to recant his beliefs and his teachings. And he requested some time to pray, and so they gave him one more night And the next day, Martin Luther came back and he said, I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. And I'll tell you folks, as I stood there on the very spot, I prayed, Lord, would you give me a measure of that courage in this day to say, here I stand. Boy, if the truth isn't popular, So be it, here I stand. If I get rejected by my peers, so be it, here I stand. I want to be as winsome for Christ as I can be and represent Him well, but if it doesn't always work out nice and neat, so be it. (coughs) Here I stand. I can do no other. Has God given you that kind of courage? That's the kind of courage that we all need to pray for. So Abraham's effort here was courageous and it really brought honor to God. Verse 15, during the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them (coughs) as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. There are lots of ways you and I can honor God. Abraham did it here by tithing on these spoils. He he honored God by living a life of integrity, by refusing to take money that didn't belong to him, but he really honored God by allowing the Lord to use him as a rescuer when his loved one had been captured. The Bible says there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons. Are you a part of God's rescue team? I wanna close today by reading the words of a hymn that I grew up singing. Boy, it's amazing how these hymns stick in your brain. And as I was looking at this passage, I wanna tell you that hymn just began to go over and over. I used to sing this as a teenager, believe it or not, and it literally gave me chills then And when I look at the words today, I still get chills. Let me close with this. Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Snatch them in pity from sin and the grave. Weep o'er the erring one. Lift up the fallen. Tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. Though they are sliding him, still he is waiting, waiting the penitent child to receive. Plead with him earnestly. Plead with him gently, he will forgive if they only believe. Down in the human heart, crushed by the tempter, feelings lie buried that grace can restore. Touched by a loving heart, wakened by kindness, cords that are broken will vibrate once more. And here's the last verse. Rescue the perishing, duty demands it. Strength for thy labor, the Lord will provide. Back to the narrow way, patiently win them. Tell the poor wanderer, a Savior has died. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. Boy, you really got to admire the courage of a man like Benny Newton. He had the courage to go into the streets of L.A. during a riot and throw his body over someone who was about to die. Got to admire that. But you've got to admire even more Jesus Christ, who stepped into the war zone of this world, where all of us had been spiritually mugged, beaten down by sin, bankrupted, by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Jesus, at the cross, hurled his body across ours and said, kill me, don't kill them. And I tell you today, my friends, that is a savior worth serving. That is a savior worth yielding your life to. If you haven't done that, today ought to be the day. Father, thank you that you've called us to be a part of your rescue team. Thank you for the example of Abraham, his concern, his wisdom and smartness, and the way he went about it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, O oh God, for his courage. May we live the same way as we engage in rescue today, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. 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 Will the ushers please come forward as we receive our tithes and offerings.